<laughs> That's gonna be a fun intro, isn't it? For... <laughs> <laughs> I've just been looking at that. That's awesome. Unbelievable, oh, right? Shit. It's from a Capoeira group. What? Oh yeah. Oh, I forgot about that. An all-white Capoeira group. All-white Capoeira group. Uh, I haven't looked at the picture of that. Have they all got dreadlocks? They're bad. They're boys. And occasionally, they talk about running. Yes, it's the Bad Boy Running Podcast with your hosts, Jody Rainsford and David Heller. Admit I was a clone to be messing around, but that doesn't mean that you have to leave town. Bye 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 bye. Hello, happy new year! Happy new year! Even though it's not happy, it's not happy. Well, it will be now, but it isn't while we're recording. What's happened? What's happened? What? Is it sad? What's happened? We says not happy. Well, no, it hasn't happened yet. The year hasn't happened yet. New year hasn't. We're still, we're still in in that period. It has for between... our listeners. Has for our listeners. It, it might have done for the listeners. Which yeah. I mean, there's no way we're getting four episodes out of the next four. Dummy, maybe we were. <laughs> maybe we were. Be foolish. But... I would. I would put it past it coming out in the wrong order. So. Yeah. <laughs> Happy Christmas. Happy <laughs> Christmas. <laughs> yeah. Welcome to Fab. Welcome to Bad Boy Running. How are you, JD? How how is your Christmas and New Year been? Oh, I am not very well at all. I've got I've done the thing of um, working all the way up till Christmas Eve, and then just as soon as I stop working, getting ill. So I'm I'm not no. well. Not wasting disease I was hoping for either. <laughs> so you haven't managed to lose <laughs> two gonna, oh, no amazingly i've put weight on brilliant i've not been drinking <laughs> oh no amazing i've not been drinking because uh, i just i don't feel like it um i've not really been eating eating that much either um but amazingly still managed still managed to put weight on it's just incredible just what a I'm, great crisp i'm always amazed by how can you not lose masses of weight when you give out at least like a liter of snot I mean, that's that's been, I that don't know been my experience at Christmas. How does it, where does it come from? I just don't understand how it generates. Yeah, it's I mean. Magic. How, and it's so fast as well. The it's speed like you, at which it creates. Your nose and it's there again. You know, it's, 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 like, it's like Matt Simpson's balls, the kind of speed that it churns out. <laughs> it churns out smeg. Oh, God, please don't talk about oh, Matt Simpson's balls episode. in my chair. This is just, <laughs> This is a serious episode, isn't it? This is all about WADA. This, we might have we might oh, have yeah. new listeners. We're not used to our frivolity, but um, but but actually talking about Christmas, JD, did uh, did you did you receive my Christmas present? Not received any Christmas present. No, if there's nothing nothing What's you it? thought this is just for me from David. No. Okay. Okay. What in the post? Not necessarily on the post. Could be could be uh, online. Could be online. No. Well, I think the listeners. You keep mentioning this. Oh, your presence out there and stuff like that. I don't know what you're talking about. Well, I think the listener knows. Do you? Does the listener know? Well, probably not that many listeners, but committed. <laughs> so, listeners. how many? What two listeners know? The commis- the, the committed listener will know. Um, what what your your present is? We'll maybe have to revisit that when you've finally figured it out. I thought someone would have tagged you by now. 
something in an episode that I'm not in. Potentially an episode you are in, maybe of putting in a little Christmas egg for you. Oh, and this is a Christmas egg. <laughs> Christmas egg, little Christmas oh, don't egg. Don't make me go back and listen to episodes. Please. You're going to have to start <laughs> from the beginning. You're have to, we put it in, we put it in a random number. We put it in the 12, 12 days of Christmas. <laughs> You're going to listen to that again. I love that, yeah. actually. That's a great, that's a one way of getting our listener fi- figures up, isn't it? So we go back, oh, we've got, we've got special things, but we, we put an Easter egg on a, on a, an old episode you've got to go back and listen to everything again in order to hear it are we going to go back and make predictions of the year and put them in last year like wow these guys are good their insight is amazing (laughs) (laughs) but um we've we've got a this this interview last year how are you good actually all right oh good you were going to reveal the last episode you were going to reveal why you haven't been running well, weirdly enough, I'm good from uh, like not being ill. I went, I woke up Christmas morning. I had, so I've been ill for about a week ever since the election party that I had with Port Pie. It's taken me out. So I've had 10 you days had a of that. You Easter hangover. Yeah. Oh, my, I mean, I'm gonna, it's going to be a five year hangover, realistically. Isn't 10 years, man. 10 years. Oh, I hope not. Oh, boy. Um, and then, um, and then. Christmas Day, I woke up about three in the morning, couldn't sleep because I had... So excited. I was so excited by the gifts, <laughs> indeed. But my face was throbbing. I had um, sinus, sinus infection. Oh, did you? Yeah. So I just had this pain on my, my head. It's like, oh. And so I was feeling pretty bad. Then I, um, I got rid of half a pound of uh, solids through my nasal on my, on my mouth. But then um, Sweetheart came over, uh, Briggsy's brother came over, and I just thought, yeah, there's only one medicine for this. And it worked. I woke up the next day. What and was that? Somehow, oh, hot chocolate. Hot chocolate, yeah. I just boozed it all out. And so actually, I didn't feel too bad, um, except my, obviously, my, my injury still feels bad because I've got a fractured pelvis, don't I? Fractured hip. Or hairline fracture. Oh no! no it was, I thought it, not hairline fracture. It was it wasn't it a uh, stress fracture? It was. What's the difference stress fracture? I've got a, a hairline stress fracture of the hip. Apparently, we're so, adding um, to it now. Hairline stress fracture. Do you want to add something else to it? No, isn't isn't a hairline fracture? Isn't a hairline how much of a fracture? And a stress fracture is what's caused the fracture. So you can they're have different, the. Are there different adjectives to describe the fracture? I I kind of feel the more. Adjectives you use. Better than hairline. Hairline sounds. Mm, stress sounds. Oh. I should just go fracture. Fra- fractured my hip. Fractured hip. A broken hip. Snaps. I've got a smashed hip. I snapped my hip. Yeah. But annoyingly, because it's NHS, I've. Um, they're I've staying had... snapped for a long time. Uh, yeah, I've got a month until I then see the specialist about it to find out what to do. So, in How some ways, diagnosed earlier. Well, have you not? Did you not have any of that, like X-ray or anything? I had an X-ray, but it. it and actually, did I have an X-ray? I don't. I, oh, I can't remember. If I, I don't. Maybe I didn't. Let me. Let me once. Let me once went to have an X-ray at the uh, the Withington, um, where we were living in Muswell Hill, and um, we were there, and I was sat there listening to the uh, the radiographers talking. And I was absolutely mm. positive they said, 
Oh, because she had her jaw um, uh, x-rayed, saying that the x-ray machine weren't working. Um, and the other one guy said, <laughs> saying, well, just do it anyway. And like Libby went, <laughs> and, Libby went and had the x-ray done. And uh, and she came out and I'm like, I don't think the x-ray was working. She goes, well, what are you talking about? I'm like, I'm sure they just like said... like one of those coffee adverts where they're going... Yeah, no, well, yeah, like that, exactly. <laughs> and I was like... <laughs> <laughs> behind the thing <laughs> those adverts are so old you're sharing your age there uh, our age there uh, and so but it was true it, it wasn't working that day and so she didn't have an x-ray but they just pretended just so they didn't have uh, to go through the big world telling her that she had to go home <laughs> oh because they didn't want to have the anger directed yeah. towards them oh yeah. that is weak but also that is proper do badder that is better as well. Respect that a lot. Imagine that, if you that. did that with other with other medical things. Uh, yeah, yeah, we've done your tonsils. Um, yeah, they're out. Well, where are they? Uh, in the bin somewhere. Whatever. I do remember be saying it was weird that this one time she had to have a naked X-ray though. <laughs> oh dear. I mean, if you're going to get in trouble, you might as well. It <laughs> might as well go all in. But, um, <laughs> so what? So where does this where does this leave you in terms of right? So you only what you're only down to eighty miles a week now or something? Well, yeah. I mean, I'm not. I've not run. This this will be the okay, longest. The, I've... No, okay. I don't want you to lie to me. When you say you've not run, have you actually not run, or do you mean I've just like because <laughs> your your not run is different to my not run. Well, this this is this is how bad it was. I was are, we um, both, are we both doing the same amount of exercise? The, yeah, I think we are. I, I was I was in the Peak District. Went to visit Danny and uh, Sarah from Love Trails and Kristen has. And and actually, I think we're going to talk about this later because there's a funny story linking to something I think we're going to talk about to do with racism, um, which, as a we funny know, story about racism. is one of the funniest. Hello, new listeners. Hello, new listeners. I think you know. I think you know the headline we're going to talk about, right? Our lovely Italian friends. But um, but we went for a walk in um, Carsten, which is I always seem to go to. Just ran, just always end up in Carsten, which is where the Rebel Steeplechase was, and um, and we were, we were coming off the edge of whatever that famous tour is, and um, and I was just wearing non-grip trainers, broken hip. So sorry, yeah, that's better. Broken, broken hip. It's an upgrade. Hip. Broken hip, <laughs> that's good, that is good, that is good. Broken hip, no grip, mud everywhere. I'd fallen down twice and we were going down. So this time I was like, oh, if I fall, it's going to be on my hip side. Um, and I was amazed I wasn't in a full plaster cast already, to be fair, given the broken hip situation. So, um, but then we're late for the train. So like, we're going to have to run to the car. I'm like, oh, I don't think I can, I don't think I should run for the car. I, like it's going to put me back. So I've, I've not run since I did a 10k with Mama B, um, where I paced her to a 10k. But it kind of make. But that's the thing. I don't what? know. Say that again. So I paced Mama B to a 10k. But that would have been three. <laughs> so, weeks, so you three have weeks run, then. That would have been three weeks ago. That was before I found out about. Well, you might have been before you found out, but you still had it then. Yeah, I mean, I've done, I've definitely done the craft half. I've definitely done, I've definitely done a lot of running on it. You do all those things with a, with a, with a broken hip. With one leg, with one <laughs> leg. <laughs> and, um, but, 
makes sense because it it did hurt um but then again it didn't hurt crazy amounts but um but also i think essentially what's happened and this is the trouble with having a double injury because when i went in originally to the sports scientist i had the issue of my foot i had the issue which they thought might be broken it might be uh norton's neuroma it might be and i had the issue with my my um groin and because I had these two things at the time, my foot seemed more important, and so they put all of their attention on that. Oh. And and also because when you've got two injuries, you can't one of them's doing better than the other because one of them's a limiting factor on your running. And so at the time, the limiting factor was the foot, and so it wasn't until the foot kind of got a bit better that then it became the groin. Right. And so now. I've, I've had to put off three follow-up appointments with the podiatrist because I, I haven't run enough to know whether the, the insoles I've got help. And so it wasn't until that kind of got sorted that the focus went on the groin. And, you know, all this frustration I've been having with nothing improving when I do all these boring exercises for months at a time. Yeah. I'm like, well, it's I've got a broken pelvis so um, or hip or whatever it is. So, um so I think in some ways it's good news in that hopefully with rest that solves it. But I think it is more complicated than that anyway, because the, the, I do think I've had this weakness and various other things that, so hopefully it's a good thing. The only potential downside is that London marathon 26th of April or around then it's going to be, it's going to be a race given that I'm seeing the guy, 15th of jan so and it's six to eight weeks for a a uh a broken pelvis whatever it is broken hip um to heal obviously that means probably four weeks for you know a guy like me i'm very creamy eat a lot of milk drink a lot of milk have a lot of yogurt i'm going going, going double down on the breakfast cereals now um so it's gonna be a rush to be a 315 pacer so so you doubled down on the breakfast cereals. What? Yeah, you gotta get your calcium in, get that that boner healing. Oh my god. I didn't I didn't just say get that boner healing, by the way. A bone <laughs> a healing. Just uh, <laughs> just realised the words that came out of my Goodbye, new listeners. Goodbye. <laughs> wow, wow. Um this worth saying for the interview, it really is. It really is. <laughs> oh dear. <laughs> but how are you? Are you on the road to recovery? To recovery? What of my of the of the illness that I've just talked about? Um, well, are you, are you yeah, back running yet? Back running? Uh, I, haven't, I haven't been out. Thing is, even if I was well, I wouldn't have gone out. The weather's been awful. I wouldn't have gone out running in that weather anyway. So it's not as yeah. if it, I've lost anything. Yeah. True. True. Well, should we? It's horrific, it's horrific isn't it? The weather at the moment. I mean, like it's just it's not. Have you? I suppose you have our Christmas day was beautiful. It was Our wonderful. Christmas day was beautiful, but every other day apart from that has been. Oh, it's just, it's just. This is this is a thing, listener. If you're, if you're an American listener sat in Texas, you don't understand how much. And and I I do We've have had months worth of rain in in four days. Yeah, I, I which do is, have. Just what we normally have, but this was a month. This, I mean, it's just like it's so flooded around where we are. What's yeah. Didn't even know. I've not yeah. been listening to the news because it's Christmas, but um, but I do I do have sympathy for like our our Chicago and our New York and even our Canadian listeners because 
I mean, I think that weather disrupts. I mean, it doesn't at the moment because I'm not running, but it does disrupts training so much, and also it disrupts motivation so powerfully. But imagine if you're, you know, Danny Bent's sister lives in Alaska. Like, how how could you be a runner there? Or you, you see the weather in New York at times, and that seems to be every year they've got such deep snow. It, I don't I don't know how yeah. you can be a top end runner and, and come from these these areas it's just the obstacles to, to training unless you maybe just more treadmill runners i was gonna say if only there was a way of running indoors <laughs> someone invented but <laughs> well oh this is this is something i've had on my list to talk about for a long time there is now a treadmill that that not only is there a treadmill gym but you know what's the cycling company that peloton peloton, peloton yeah. are bringing out a running version of Peloton. So you can run. What? With And it's something like 5,000 pounds. <laughs> so you can run with other people indoors. And actually, this is, this is because I, there's, yeah, there's but been that's, a... That's, that's weird, isn't it? That's weird, isn't it? Because like the, the whole thing about like spinning classes is it always, it, it's worked on that, having a group there and... Mm going against each but maybe it makes sense but maybe it makes sense because i've never thought of it as north american weather because i've always but maybe that's why these these treadmill classes exist in new york or why it is it could potentially be a viable business because i just don't think anyone would buy one in the uk but suddenly it does make sense if you're stuck at you know in snow I want to go around running with my pals on yeah. this treadmill. That'd be yeah. great. You can have an ultra version where you start off running with a load of people and then you don't see them all for the next nine hours. <laughs> That'd be brilliant. That's like just a brilliant ultra version. I mean, I think, I think when virtual reality comes in properly, it will be amazing. But how will you? How will you? How will you replicate the food stops on virtual reality? That's the thing. Just set I suppose up. you just did virtual reality, virtual reality, and then you just set up a like a smorgasbord of food and just, just get off the get, get off the treadmill every, every twenty minutes. <laughs> yeah, just have a tray like an array of monster munch set out for you. But um, given given that this is an epic interview coming up and it's it's a reasonably long one, we got to talk about racism. Can we talk about racism? Are we talking about racism, as in people having preferences against different races, as in running races, or are we talking about the real racism? We're talking about, I mean, there's nothing funnier than uh, when people get it dramatically wrong, I Oh, feel. go on then. Yeah, no, that is good. Go on. So, I'm apparently, sure everyone... Apparently, we're it. not a politically correct podcast. Are we not? Well, he keeps mentioning the. Have you said? Have you <laughs> just going to say off topic? There, have you read any of our uh, of our reviews recently on iTunes? <laughs> no, I mean I was asked for them, but say, say, saying that we're non PC is quite quite a popular thing, and I just I, I, okay. I think we are ultra PC. I think we're super PC. Um, there's there's one review on there that's a five star review, which is the most scathing five star <laughs> review I've ever seen, saying that we're, that we're actually shit. But they're giving us a five, giving us five stars. It's completely inexplicable. There's someone, one just saying that we're shit. There's a new one saying that we're shit. But there's a, a five star one saying that we're rubbish. 
which I just don't understand at all. I've never seen a five-star review that's been so aggressively uh, scathing <laughs> about the podcast. <laughs> just... But they normally, normally in those in those ones they talk about not being PC. And some people say um, it's great because it's we're not PC. And then uh, which is uh, which is funny. And then other people say, oh, we're great despite the fact that we're not always PC. So it's. I think it's, I think people mistake not holding back for being on PC. And while we do often say that, repeat about how many times Mo Farah has has not answered his doorbell and has trained with pe- pre- pe- people that's not proven to be... That's not being PC. That's yeah. being, that's, that's being dangerously that, litigious. I think that's what people mistake for being un-PC. Um, I mean, we do make some silly jokes sometimes, but yeah, we're definitely crazy PC because essentially we don't believe racism and prejudice is a good thing. So, but... It can be a good thing when it's this entertaining. Serie <laughs> <laughs> A? Serie A? Oh, my God. Have you seen this? Oh, my God, yeah. So, oh, for, oh if, if you've not seen this already in the news, people, just look up look up Serie A anti-racism campaign. What, no, the thing is, this is it. This is what happened. So, this, so the first thing that happened was that Gazzetto della Sports, I think it was, um, ran a newspaper headline um, that was about the uh, it, it was about a, a bunch of matches that took place on a Friday and mm. the scorers were um, a, a, a couple of black players and they ran with the headline Black Friday, which <laughs> and you just like what the f- okay right <laughs> which. And then the thing is, they came out and said, "Well, what's wrong with it? They are black." And you're like, "Okay, that doesn't it doesn't work like that." And then everyone yeah. sort of piles in. Well, half people said, "Well, but it, but but they are black." And then half people pile in. Yeah, you know, just the near the normal the way that it's split and everything. And but so, I, I mean, for that one, I've got a little bit of sympathy. It's just people being ignorant about how you how sensitive you should be about some issues. Okay, but I yeah. can I can understand those people getting it wrong. Is 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 ignorance and naive, naivety and well, stupidity? Well, the, the, the thing was, the thing was, they're talking about it's in Italy. It's like institutionalized, um, yeah. and it's so so deeply, deeply uh, ingrained that the reason they're even arguing about it is the fact that they just just don't understand what why why that's wrong. Yeah, and then, yeah, exactly. and then and then so Syria come along and go, okay, we've got an anti-racism campaign that's going to stop all of this. And if you if you're not if you're not a European li- uh, listener, Serie A is the the highest level of football league in Italy. So it's essentially one of the four biggest football leagues, which makes it probably one of the biggest ten sporting leagues in the world. Yeah, it has, it has a problem. Well, it doesn't just have a problem with racism; it has a problem with fascism. Like there, yeah. like there are, yeah. uh, you know, it, it, they are very. There are some very very right wing. Uh, you know, ultras uh, to the extent of, you know, even like doing uh, uh, like fascist salutes and stuff yeah. as part of the fan bases. So there is there are big, big problems there with um, uh, with fascism, which is we don't hear <laughs> very often. Yeah. Um, but uh, but but there are. And so th- there's there's an issue there. Um, and so they thought, OK, what would we do? We're going to do a campaign which is going <laughs> to fix all this. 
I just, and then really at that point, I don't really know how to carry this on because the it it's as though they go. I know what we're going to do. We're going to we're going to pour some water on this situation. But instead of pouring water, they literally emptied a tank of petrol on. Gasoline's it. a liquid, right? That'll help. Yeah. Oh my! I just don't. I, I, what I like about this, and we're not going to actually reveal what happened because I don't think I, so many people have looked at this and tried to understand what what was going on. There is no, there's just, they've tried to understand what's going on and people have been reading about it and trying to find, you know, when you look at a piece of abstract art and you go, I don't know what that is. And then you try and find a bit of background. You go, okay, now I kind of understand it from this. (laughs) This isn't like that. You try to look behind you like everything that anyone says makes it worse. Yeah. Would you like to describe what this campaign was, David? Well, I, I think, listener, if you've not looked at it already, go and have a go and have a look first. We'll, we'll have was... a little pause. We'll have a little pause. <laughs> Alright, go and have a look. But also, I would I would I would say if I had to come up with a campaign that could be the most racist campaign possible, this is what I'd have done. <laughs> This I is think, literally what I'd have done. I think I think it would. But the thing is, what I like about what I like about this is that it's another one of those situations where they try to like kind of absolve responsibility. They've gone, okay, we've <laughs> given this to an artist, and it's his interpretation, and uh, and they've kind of gone well, and we sort of went with him. So then everything. It's one of those ones where you just go, why did no one at any point go? This might come across badly. In fact, this doesn't just come across badly. This comes across as more racist than the racist things that we're trying to talk about, where there is, you, know, you can sometimes argue that there's misunderstanding. This is essentially when I think one of the um, one of the one of the players who who's con- uh, who's condemned this along with many, many players said literally said, I went back and I had a look, I, read, I read about the artist. I read about what they were trying to do in order to gain some kind of understanding. And all that it seems to be is that he basically said, I really like painting pictures of monkeys. And that is <laughs> that's that has been the basis of his creating that entire campaign. And actually, it does tie in to the to our interview quite nicely. Although I want to tell another story what? that Chris told me that is what? worse than this. Because just ask someone black. That's all it is. Inv- why don't you get a black artist to do it in the same way we're talking about WADA involve yeah. the athletes ask them what they want involve sports people involve black people in your campaign and that way they will tell you if something's racist but I was well, I, well, the thing about this was that the more the more the artist talked the more racist it got <laughs> because he goes ah oh, I've done different chimpanzees to represent different continents so we've got this one European, <laughs> this one African, and it goes this one Asian, as you can see from their narrow eyes. You're like, oh my God, how have you got? You... Oh my God, look here, they do have different eyes. Yes, what are you doing, man? I know, it's just like, what are you, honestly? Which like... you can tell from their work ethic. These I... ones are good at math. <laughs> <laughs> it's just, wow. it's worse. So, I like, can top it. How are they not vetting these people? So I can top it. So Chris, and this, this is, this, this is parody beyond parody. That is, if this was in a sitcom that was about, you were like, this is, you've, I know you're doing this as a ludicrous thing, but it's too far now. It's just so ridiculous. So, friend Chris, I won't say any. Maybe I shouldn't say his name. I was fine to say his name. Um, works in mental health, 
and he's doing a PhD in I think psychology or it's either psychology or something even more um, like intelligent and and also relevant to this topic and Liverpool uh, he goes to Liverpool and they they are you know hyper aware actually that and it's just the the, 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 the council the degree we're like we're going to do a because Liverpool essentially was built on the slave trade it was it was it was the yeah is the fu- slavery was pretty much founded in Liverpool well it was founded in Bristol but Liverpool yeah. certainly certainly uh, enjoyed the spoils of it yeah yeah and so um as as a kind of awareness of this they they did this really nice thing where they thought I know what we're going to do we're really going to highlight um I guess African and and black philosophy by um just we you know we we're so used to to western philosophers and I guess actually just just um non-black philosophers because there's a lot of Chinese philosophers as well and and so they had this really good idea and they then decided during the meal where everyone was coming together for like this celebration as part of it they were going to do a uh, a role play <laughs> can you see where this, this is going jd they're going to do a role play where they get the actors on stage to to role play something for everyone to kind of take part in to almost increase their empathy to, to what used to happen in Liverpool. So they dressed up some black actors as slaves oh, brought them no. on stage, and they had a slave auction. Oh they, my were going God. Going, they were going, how much am I bid for this? How much am I bid for that? And, and the audience didn't know what to do because everyone was like, what, what the fuck is going on? Like, how is this a thing? Like, and, and people were crying. People were, but the, there was, because of this awkwardness, the people there going, how much am I bid for this? And some people who were kind of almost ironically nice people were then like, oh, this, we need to try and get this, like, you know, when you have that social awkwardness of, oh, no one's getting involved, like, 50 pounds! <laughs> trying to beat. And so, I just can't think of anything that could possibly be worse to do that actually just highlights how bad the lack of understanding is. And, um, I mean, the fallout from it has been, as you'd imagine, pretty dreadful, given that they they should have just gone oh yeah this was we got this completely wrong we're so sorry but they used the language of um because it obviously hit the press and went fairly high up the chain they used the language of it's almost a, a politician's um an apology and a politician's apology where they don't apologize for what they've done they apologize for the the reaction <laughs> they apologize <laughs> for the pain what has happened has caused people like we are sorry that th- this is i'm sorry that you don't understand what we were trying to do <laughs> that you've been yeah. upset by it yeah and and i mean and and and, and, and like how can you get this so so wrong 
And when Chris was saying this, we were all gobsmacked and like mouths a drop, most mouth drop. But I also there's a gut part of me that just finds it so funny from an awkwardness point of view that you could be so far off the mark, given what you're trying to achieve and also what you should know. You're like, did you not ask someone black to be involved, maybe in the planning of all of this? Like, it's insane, insane. Isn't it, that, isn't it that typical, um, like, uh, white middle class thing of going, oh, yeah, I'm doing this to highlight something. And then just like, but literally not, it being this completely ethically. Um, uh, right intentions. Right, yeah, that's it. The right intentions, but actually trying to be trying to do something that, that is uh, essentially not inclusive in any way because they're not bringing in anything that got okay i've got in my mind that i'm going to do this thing that's going to show how um uh how how woke i am and how woke we are and how uh, you know uh, highlighting this but actually not really getting the perspective of the people that we're trying to be uh, trying to highlight this uh, this cause for or I'd, highlight I'd imagine in one of those meetings someone said the phrase post racism or post racial Oh, this is post-racial. <laughs> this is post-racism. This is ne- this is wow. We awake. I reckon there's a lot of, of back pat- back patting going on. Yeah, exactly. They're like so pleased, so pleased with themselves about it and everything. Like, but don't you think we should um we should have more uh, ethnically diverse? No, no, no. They're not on the committee. <laughs> absolutely yeah. not. No, this is We've my vision. This. We've got this. I just wish this had happened We've got in America. This. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I just wish it would happen in America because then South Park would have done an episode linked to it, which would have been one of the most ridiculous episodes of all time. And and part of me just wished I could see a filming of this to see like how bad. I mean, it's just the worst thing. But this is possibly the worst thing anyone's ever done in the history of <laughs> trying trying to oh, reach out know. to a community. In the history of trying to reach out to a community, I just can't see how you could get worse. I don't know. It's a weird thing. We want to highlight the horrors of the slave trade by trying to reenact it. And some of the some of the feedback they got reenact was the worst parts of it. Like my <laughs> gran would have, my gran would have could have been one of these people. So like she may have been, like, she'd have known people who were there. Like if this actually happened to you, like wow. Um, wow! I mean, from controversy to controversy to controversy, what what a seg! What a seg! <laughs> that, that is a seg. But this is basically Rob is unbelievably knowledgeable and unbelievably good at taking the time to speak to us. So, Nick, take it away. So, listeners, Jodie and I have been talking about, I guess, drugs and sports for the last year and a half or so, sometimes knowledgeably, often not. And so we've always said we'd love to get someone on who could actually clarify how it works, like what what the actual politics is, where the power lies, how hard it is to test and... Also, I guess an understanding of you know what what kind of percentages are we talking about of athletes who we do think are potentially um, crossing that line. So we've gone out and got one of the, if not the leading expert in the world, the former 
director general of WADA, but also has set up a um, an athlete advocates' rights organisation called Global Athletes. So, um, welcome on the podcast, Robert Kola. Hey! <laughs> That's quite the introduction, David. Thank you. I'm not sure it's accurate, but I'll take it. <laughs> Accuracy is not something we're known for, so I, I go with anything. Yeah. You, got, you got your name right. That's good enough. <laughs> yeah, I give them that. Yeah, we're about as accurate as a, a Russian athlete's blood sample, should we say. So, uh... <laughs> but, um, I mean, where to, where to begin? Because how, how did you get into to WADA to begin with? You know, I, in uh, 96, 97, I, I was working with the Canadian anti-doping program. Um, primarily, my first job there was I was responsible for traveling across the country in Canada um, with Olympic athletes leading up to the Atlanta Games. So trying to promote the spirit of sport, um, trying to promote the athletes and, and community-based what, what sport really is. So we're talking about true sport and value-based sport. Um, and when WADA was established in 2000, uh, we got a knock on the door asking if I would uh, help out in establishing WADA and working with WADA. So I've been there since the very beginning in 1999 and worked uh, on a contract from 2000 to 2002 and started full time when it moved to Montreal in 2002. How does, how does, so, how does someone get into anti-doping? It doesn't, it doesn't seem like a, um, something you go, OK, I'm definitely going to I'm going to go into becoming uh, an anti-doping specialist. What's your journey to that point? It, it was an interesting one because before I went into anti-doping, I had no interest in it. I, I was a sports person. I, I played ice hockey, and I was working for the city of Ottawa in their sport and recreation department running programs for everything from uh, five-year-olds right up to 45-year-olds. And someone came into the building one day and told they had a job for me. And at that time, I was probably making $20 an hour uh, working for the city of Ottawa, and the person said, I have a job for you to travel across the country with, with Olympic athletes and, and talk about clean sport. And I went in for the interview. I got the job. And I was so lucky they offered me $10 an hour <laughs> uh, on a six-month contract. Um, and the six-month contract was only paid out for 10 weeks when I was traveling. And so I decided to take the leap. I, I was, and I took the leap uh, to, out of a union-based job into a new initiative and a new exciting journey. And that's kind of, I went six months, three months into the job, I was offered um, a full-time position with the organization. So I just kind of fell into it, to be quite honest. So were you, were you having to sell drugs on the side then to kind of make ends? <laughs> <laughs> Along the way, the, the salary just couldn't quite hit the mark. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I, just, I just made sure I ate a lot of craft dinner. <laughs> it's, interesting, it's interesting because you i don't know why it is but if you've ever watched something like catch me if you can and you've got the um the story of frank abagnale jr you know it's always like the fraudsters are the best at becoming anti-fraudsters so i don't know whether the dopers are the best at becoming anti-dopers whether that that was your your path in <laughs> no i wasn't a doper so i didn't become an anti-doper but uh you know it, it's been it's it's been an incredible journey i've when I worked with WADA, and I think I traveled to about 100 countries and met so many different people in different cultures and different ways of, of operating. It's been, a, it's been a great experience. And now I'm doing Global Athlete, which is equally as even more fun, I would say, because it's, it's out of politics and it's supporting athletes and, and being truth and bringing truth to power. And that scares a lot of people um, when we speak the truth. And we're not afraid to speak the truth. And yes, we get veiled threats. Um, 
but we're willing to do it and I'm willing to stick my, my neck out for it. And I think that's been the fun part. I mean, is that partly why you've you've set it up? Because you've, is it been a response to the power of WADA and, and you seeing that you actually needed to do something different? It wasn't, the, the initial concept wasn't my idea. Um, when I left WADA, <clears throat> I resigned in August 2018 and I was responsible for the athlete committee. When I left, they reached out to me and said, Rob, what are we going to do without you? Because um, I was a strong advocate for them and always thought they should have a voice and speak openly when they had opinions. And even if they were different than what the organization itself believed it. And I left and uh, someone came to me and said, would you be interested in possibly trying to change the face of sport through athlete activism and athlete rights? Uh, and I, it was an organization called Fair Sport. And I said, yeah, I would... I would be interested, but I have some conditions. And the conditions were that funding couldn't be attached to decision-making, that it needs to be athlete-driven, uh, and it needs to be bottom-up approach. And I want to bring athletes together to talk about whether it's needed, whether it was viable, and what they would see it, and see how they would see it moving and how they would see it be being created. Because I could have set up something myself, and been like everybody else, Rob Keeler sets a, an agenda, sets a strategic plan, mm. and everybody has to follow me. This way it's turned around a little bit. We met with the athletes. The, my conditions were agreed to. And we spent a day and a half brainstorming on what are the opportunities, what are the threats, how are we going to launch this thing, what's it going to be called. Everything from, I mean, it was, it was a, a blank page that we filled in a day and a half. Um, and that's how we came up with the concept. And to be quite honest with you, I think that's partly how and why we've become so far in a very short period of time because we've been real. We've been taking the athlete's voice and not being afraid to push it forward. And I think we're gaining a little bit of respect for that over that short period of time. And that was that was in February 13th we launched. And we've, we've come leaps and bounds since that time. And is, I, the, is the implication then, so just to add a little bit of context for this, for, uh, for, for someone that doesn't know this, uh, this area at all, is, is the implication then that the, the way that um, uh, the anti-doping authorities are set up at the moment, there is no voice of the athlete in there so that when they hand down sentences and when they, they do things, no one takes into account the, the voice of the, of, uh, of the athletes who, who are clean. Is that, is that the kind of implication with this? I think I take sport as a whole, and, and not just to put anti-doping in one area, but the, the whole sporting structure in general is when they have athlete committees, that, and there are some exceptions, and this is not a criticism of the athletes, but of the organizations that are structuring them, is when they structure these athlete commissions, they're there to represent the organization. So if yeah. you take the, the, uh, the IOC athlete commission, they sign an oath with the, with the IOC to to protect the values of the Olympic movement. And with that, there becomes some responsibility to support the organization. And that's where I think I experienced some pretty unique stuff when, when Becky Scott was the chair of the WADA Athlete Committee, who kind of broke that mold. And I think it was as a result of Russia, where athletes, when, when Russia was banned from the Rio, or when we found out they were had institutionalized doping in, prior to the Rio Olympic Games, the athletes started to speak up. And yeah. they started to find their voice because no one was doing anything what they thought was in their best interest. And to me, that was that was refreshing to see athletes being willing to speak up, willing to take a stand uh, in a very difficult area because 
Well, uh, the, the truth is, when an athlete speak that speaks up or anybody speaks up, the the fear of retribution is real, and yeah. mm-hmm. and it's it's pretty it's a pretty lonely and tough place to be, and that's I why think I think we brought it forward. Yeah, I think especially I mean, there's this fear of, of retribution amongst your peers, but when you consider the uh, the rogue element of Russian politics and just how far things like Crazy Bear could go to destroy your life, uh, you know, the, the hackers and things, that's when it actually is a real fear that could could be life-threatening, potentially. Yeah, I'm not sure life-threatening. I think the the my information that I had, and, you know, because I was responsible when I was with WADA for the Russian file, I oversaw it, I developed the roadmap back to compliance with the Russians, and had meetings with the, the Secret Service in the U.S., had meetings with the Secret Service in Canada. And, you know, the general feeling was is that their interest is to try to steal information and, and shame. And, and so a, a physical threat, I don't think I've ever felt that. But the, the ability to try to undermine and, and hit someone's credibility, I think that's, that's part of the strategy that they like to use. And and do you think then with um with the, the, the organization as it currently is, uh with kind of global athlete, are you, are you looking to be more of a, a trade union for uh athletes, or is it more that you're looking to lobby uh, to be a lobbyist organization based on their um their desires? So our first initial plan when we we sat down in, in February two thousand and eighteen was to really start pushing and, and gaining the trust. So being an honest voice, uh, sticking up for athletes. We were we launched, and then three weeks into the launch, I had a phone call from someone from Irish Karate, an athlete, who said they were stuck in the middle of a gov- governance dispute. The CEO, or the, the, sorry, the chair of Irish Karate, was given a vote of non-confidence and was kicked off the board. Instead of leaving, the person had Peter Doyle was his name. He'd been there for 20 years. Instead of leaving, he decided to set up his own executive committee, and he had tight ties with the International Federation of Karate. And he told the athletes, if you do not join my new executive and support my new executive, you will not be able to compete at the Europeans. So he was holding the athletes hostage. (laughs) The athletes went to to the National Olympic Committee in Ireland. They went to the Sport Commission of Ireland. Uh, Letters were written. And they, there was no resolution. So they came to us, and we together wrote some letters behind the scenes to the International Olympic Committee, to the World Karate Federation, and nothing was responded to. So what we agreed to do, on a Monday morning, we released a, an open letter and called it exactly what it was, that athletes were being held hostage, they were not allowed to compete at Europeans, and those European qualifiers for the Tokyo Olympic Games. And within 24 hours... The World Karate Federation announced on its website and with the athletes that they were allowing them to compete. So just bringing the issue to the front, um, exposing the issues and not worried about the potential fallout from it. Uh, that's what we did. That was one. That was our first thing that we did uh, when we launched and pretty successful. And and that's that's really interesting, uh, partly because of I guess our prejudice. I'd assumed that the big cases were going to be dealing with your kind of 
Eastern European former Soviet blocs or dealing with small countries where uh, the power of money is, uh, is so much more um, influential on society than it is necessarily in Western countries. But for that to be happening in islands is, wow, crazy. It happens everywhere. Um, we've worked with the U.S. athletes. We've worked uh, with Canadian athletes. I mean, we've with athletes from Africa. I mean, it's it's. I guess the 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 fear of retribution than being cast aside is is different in the different countries because of the, the I guess the different economical situations and the political situations. But it's prevalent throughout, and I think that's part of what we want to do is expose the the soft politics going on where athletes are afraid and we want to stand in front of them and you what your question are we going to be a trade union i, I think the initial strategy was i said to, to gain trust to to build confidence that we were there not for ourselves but for the athletes and yeah as we move forward um, we're working with the u.s track and field right now to look at help them form a union and where you see ourselves in the future potentially of of being a collective where each country comes part, joins part of global athlete and we, we take four or five issues and we act as a collective to stand up for those issues and to, to demand, demand change. And if we don't do that, I think sport will continue to be on a downward spiral. And I think the Olympic brand is suffering and we believe that one way to help it is to get athletes involved, athletes engaged, athletes as a collective to help grow the sport together with, with the International Olympic Committee and Paralympic Committee uh, because it has more potential and I think it needs a little bit of correction. So are, are you pri primarily looking at um, kind of the Olympics and athletics and that side of things or does your remit, would it go into football and cycling and, and all kind of sports? Yeah, I would go into all the Olympic sports and Paralympic sports that we're focusing on now. The interesting thing, there's an organization called World Players who are already a union um, with professional sport. Let, let's take football, uh, basketball, the uh, hockey, ice hockey. So they're a collective group of almost 80,000 members that are, are working together. And when these professional athletes are competing internationally, World players represents them and um, everything from basic human rights to players' contracts and players' rights. And we liaise and cooperate with them to make sure we're not stepping on each other's toes. And have you, you've, have you um, found any fundamental differences in what you feel the organizations feel the athletes want and what you've found in the last um, six months or so, what they've been saying to you the, and, and the, what are those differences? I think the you, you have different groups of athletes. One, athletes are an interesting um, subculture because they're like no one else in society, I think. Because an athlete is surrounded by so many people in their entourage. So they have their coaches, their physicians, their trainers, the national federations, the international federations. So they have all their parents. They have all these people inflicting influence on them. So I think that is pretty consistent everywhere i think when we've heard from the athletes overwhelming there there are issues in, in related to compensation there are issues related to the ability to have freedom of expression so i think those are the areas and and want to be a part of the decision making and being allowed to have a voice 
And this is where if an athlete agrees with the decision of a, of a sport federation or WADA, for example, they're put up on a pedestal and they're saying, look, this is what the athletes are saying. If the voices of, an, of a voice of dissent and disagreeing, normally what happens is the athlete's opinions are cast aside, both in terms of they're uneducated and uninformed, uninformed and they don't get the issues. That's why they're addressing it that way. And one of the things that I've learned very quickly is the most passionate, educated understanding of sport are the athletes themselves. You have great sport administrators, but I think if you bring them together and do a 50-50 partnership, you'll end up with a much better environment, a much more healthy environment. Because one of the issues as well is that power imbalance. And every time you have power imbalance, you lead to all of these different Root causes, which, you know, when it comes to physical abuse, sexual abuse, uh, putting out, not selecting athletes for teams, that that power imbalance creates an imbalance that puts an athlete on a different footing. And that's where I think the, the root of the problem is. And that's why we want a collective 50% agreement. And and do you think there is recognition from the associated organizations or a, a want to actually find a way to incorporate this or, or is this something they're probably going to fight? Um, I think they want to fight it. I think they want to portray publicly that the athlete's voices are important, that the athlete is the center of the the universe, but the actions don't show that. Um, you know, I, I, there's, there's examples. One example, for example, is when the, the International Olympic Committee moved the um, marathons from, from Tokyo to Sapporo. And the athletes weren't even engaged in that decision. And if you're, bringing, if you're going to change a venue because mm-hmm. of heat requirements, well, engage the athletes. And if, and if they want to buy in, they believe it should be moved because it costs money to move it. It moves the athletes' Olympic experience away from the from Tokyo itself. Tokyo itself ends up not being able to display the beauty of, of Tokyo because normally you get. It's one of the great things about the marathon is you get to see the city um, on TV and get to experience it. And having them move it without asking or even engaging the athletes, I think, is an example again of making decisions without that engagement. And and there's other many other examples of decisions that are made without engaging i mean some of the decisions to do all the decisions to do doha essentially are that whether that's the the football world cup or the athletics um you know the the fact it even existed there in itself is a demonstration of that (laughs) and uh, yeah and and do you think with because i I guess one of the potential issues is it, it, it that will create a huge amount of extra bureaucracy um and just the massive increase in size of the organization that's being included in decisions on all levels, but, but actually is creating a far more complex decision process where the reality, you know, there's always going to need to be some financial um, reality to every decision made. And like, how, how do you think they can find that balance where, you know, the, I'm sure there will be some circumstances where the, the, the athletes themselves would always want something that is fundamentally opposed to the reality of what's possible financially. Um, like how, how do you find that balance? Well, that's, that's where you have collective agreements and collective uh, bargaining. If you look at, and I'll, I use not just the American professional leagues, uh, baseball, ice hockey, Major League Baseball, you look at football in the UK, 
when you have a collective agreement bringing athletes together um, and athlete groups together, there's a responsibility from everyone to grow the sport. And there's a recognition that it costs a certain amount to run sport. And that's where you have that give and take and say, we understand you're running the business and you have to make money to run the business. Because while the International Olympic Committee is a quote-unquote nonprofit organization, they have two, over $2 billion in reserves. So there's the ability to grow it. And, and I don't think it would add any bureaucracy. I'd actually think it would take away the bureaucracy and actually help make more informed decisions that are in the interest of growing the sport and making the sport more popular, more attractive to the public, and bringing more people around around the TVs and the stadiums to watch it. And, and do you think there's something we can do as supporters to help pressure this change? Or is it going to be really down to the power of the athletes exerting themselves? Yeah, part of the thing I think for the, the general public is to understand what the current Olympic movement looks like, where the, the money is being spent. One of the issues that we've had, and we're going to do a, we've, we've done it, we've, we've completed a study on where the revenues, as best we can, are being used and being spent within the International uh, Olympic Committee and within international federations. The problem is the books aren't open enough, uh, so mm. that the transparency is not, is not as much as we would like it to be. And I think the more we, we expose the issues, we bring them to the table and, and inform the public what's happening with, with their athletes. You know, I've done talks before and I've said, I've asked a question in the audience and I said, how much do you think your Olympic athlete makes when they go to the Olympic Games? And people throw, oh, most of them end up becoming millionaires. <laughs> and my answer is, an Olympic athlete goes to the Olympic Games, not only, not only do they not get a penny, they don't get anything, so they're not paid, but they're asked to weigh, sign away their image rights. So they, they give everything back to them, um, and they're owned by, by the International Olympic Committee and the Paralympic Committee. So I said, not only that, the majority of athletes um, can barely survive day to day because they can't afford um, to support themselves to be a full-time athlete. And we put them on pedestals. We, hire, we hold them to a higher standard than most people in society because mm. if an Olympic athlete messes up, they're expected to do more and be, be more pure than everybody else, but yet there's no compensation. And, and that's probably one of the reasons we see the rate of depressions in, in Olympic sport uh, at a very high rate because they go from being a celebrity to going to nothing and really nothing to back up. And they put 10 years of their lives on hold uh, without a job. And, and committing to the sport and they get nothing back in return. And I think that is unjust and I think that needs to change. Yeah, absolutely. And, and that's, um, I think we've, there's been a lot of movement and a lot of pressure and things like uh, college sports in the States. But um, the reality is in the smaller countries like, you know, UK is fairly small relative to the, the, the budgets of like the US. But if you're uh, not going to be podiuming, then absolutely um you're reliant on funding from our national lottery system and that is political as much as uh, as as any other committee um that people you know if you fall out with someone you won't be funded even if you couldn't if you're quick enough um so yeah yeah, yeah you absolutely. have you have the head of sports and the, the prime examples you have a head of a sports federation making two hundred and fifty thousand pounds mm -hmm. per year um 
to run the sport and you go down the administration, some of them are making 50,000, 60,000 pounds. The athletes aren't even close to that. So there needs to be a solution that, is it, are, we, are we funding an industry for administrators or are we funding something for athletes to be able to, to be engaged and to be professionals? Because everyone's a professional now. Um, there's no, much, no such thing as amateurism anymore. And with professionalism, there should be paid paid wages. And do you do you think the that struggle to survive financially does that then increase the pressure to to take drugs because the rewards of hitting the podium is such a big step up from scraping by to actually getting contracts to being sponsored to uh, being paid appearance fees and and do you think if they were paid more there would be uh, less incentive for them to cheat it's a great question you know i think it differs from country to country but the the same principle applies is if you can win a gold medal as a kenyan athlete you can feed your family and potentially even a village um through through some sponsorships, so the reward, the the risk reward is is high, and I think it is part of the reasons why athletes are more prone to potentially make that choice, because the difference between fifth and first um, is significant, but even first doesn't yield rewards that everybody thinks they do. Uh, we have athletes that work with us that have won Olympic gold medals, and they're not flourishing in terms of financial windfalls after those medals. So there's a little bit of misconception there. And I also think athletes are a little bit frustrated. And when I say they're frustrated is if we, we take the Russian example, um, and even the way some sports have dealt with managing anti-doping, where if the federations and their global regulators are not going to take it seriously, are not going to uphold the highest bans then why should athletes be held to a different standard? And what encourages athletes to say, you know what, I want to I want to play fair, I want to play true. If everyone's being lenient, then why should they want to do the same? And I think that's the little bit of problem. Is we don't have the ability to put tough rules in place and enforce them, then what encourages everybody else to want to follow them? So kind of going down that track then, if we don't have the ability to put tough rules in place and enforce them, where from the setting up of WADA to now, like, has that ability been lost or why hasn't that ability been built? So I think that the framework is there. I think the rules are there. Um, I think they're strong. I think a lot of work has gone into them over the past 20 years in developing a global framework that is harmonized and, and, and works. I think they're the, maybe the rules have gotten a little bit too complicated but the, but the, the basis is there um, the issue that we have is the application of the rules and if you're it's giving an example on the, the topical situation right now is the the Russian anti-doping scandal where WADA just announced the complete ban of, of Russia which in fact it wasn't a complete ban uh, because athletes are allowed to compete at the 2020 Tokyo Olympic Games. And we can talk about that a little bit later, why I think that's a mistake. Mm. The, the reality is, is that at times you make the rules so strong that my fear is that there people are afraid to put them in place um, and to enforce them when it comes to stakeholders because of the potential 
backlash they may receive and the potential um, inability to uphold it. The flip side is, though, athletes, and this is this is the frustrating part: an athlete who tests positive for a steroid, um, or let's let's take a, a substance that you can't take uh, through nutritional supplements. Let's take EPO, erythropoietin. If an athlete that is found positive with EPO, they are not the rules aren't bent for them. Strict liability is offered to them is is, is part of their responsibility. And the burden of proof is very high towards the athlete. And the expedited hearing and giving that athlete four years, and there's never leniency, leniency towards that. So we don't bend the rules for them. We're very easily willing to put them and make them pay for breaking the rules. But you have other examples where, where federations um, or, or countries don't fulfill the rules, but yet there's leniency on them. And I, I just can't find... I can't find the rationale for that. And if you're going to be a global regulator to set the example, you need to set the examples. And you need to make tough choices that are going to be unpopular with, with some powerful people. But if you want to stand and you want to stand in the face of adversity and, and protect the, the brands, you need to make tough decisions. So so where is the, the separation of power then between the centralized WADA and the the local associations to actually enforce the rules then like what what is actually set in stone and what is down to the local associations to have a little bit more flexibility or choice in what they even you know which stone they look under so i mean the rules are are set by the world anti-doping agency uh, the global that they they form the the rules now the rules are developed with all the stakeholders so they have involvement in in Forming the rules. That's why it's called the World Anti-Doping Code and not the World Anti-Doping Agency Code, uh, because all stakeholders agree to it and sign on to it. And is that, say, for example, one vote per country? Are, are rules passed unanimously across everyone? Does there have to be a two-thirds majority? Like, how how are these rules defined and agreed upon? So they, every six years, they go through a something called a code review process, where stakeholders can give comments. Um, there's usually three rounds of, of consultation on where they think rules should be changed or where they should be enhanced. And in the end, it's the WADA Executive Committee and Foundation Board that approve those rules. It was just done uh, at the World Conference in Katowice that was held in November uh, this year. And the Congress or the, the Congress that was there approved them and then they were adopted by the, the WADA Executive. And I think that's where we hear from our colleagues with world players. We've heard from some vocal national anti-doping organizations that the the governance and the governing bodies of WADA have become more political um, due to the influence of government and sport, the Olympic movement into the organization, and less about principle. The powers the national anti-doping organizations have, these are the ones that drive the business. And when I say that is... The World Anti-Doping Agency does not do testing. They're not a testing agency. All the testing is done nationally. Um, you have UK Anti-Doping in the UK and other similar uh, national programs globally. And they're the ones that collect whereabouts on athletes, go out and test athletes, do result management athletes. WADA has the ability to then appeal any decision that they may render. So if, if, a, if a country is being weak on a, on a finding... WADA has the right to appeal that, either if it's too weak or too strong. So they can go either way. So that's part of their role. Um, I think that the 
national anti-doping organizations. They're severely underfunded. They do not have the funds to to really tackle this issue the way they should. And I and then I'm putting a, a brush across the global scope. Um, it's 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 an underfunded industry. You have some countries that that do well. You have the U.S., who I think is almost fifteen million dollars, which is a, a great budget. Uh, but the rest, um, I think, struggle to to find the resources to take this this issue seriously, or to address it seriously. And to me, it's it's worth every penny of investment because it's an insurance policy to and, clean up sport. And like, what what determines that the U.S. has a larger fund than, say, the Kenyans or the Solomon Islands? What, where is the money for each association derived from? So it's different in every country. Um, if you take the, the U.S., for example, they get money from the U.S. government, and they also get money from the U.S. Olympic Committee. They're structured on an independent board with independent people that have no links to those organizations. So they're an independent organization. In Kenya, it's funded by the government, for example. Uh, the U.K., I think it's funded by uh, U.K. sport, if I'm, if I'm correct, or the government. I'm not sure. Canada, it's it's funded by the Canadian government. So you have different funding mechanisms. <clears throat> the the issue is is that globally you do not have the investment. You know the Solomon Islands, um, majority of countries in Africa, the majority of countries in South America, the majority of countries in Asia have very little funding going into anti doping. Uh, Kenya just started funding um, two three years ago, where they were had no funding and they were running risk of being declared non-compliant and all of a sudden they found $5 million to run an anti-doping program. So I think that's one of the things that needs to be looked at seriously and, and where the funding is going and, and where that money is being spent and is it an equal and level playing field globally. I think right now it's not. So, so WADA does have the ability because, I mean, from what you said previously, you know, they had the right to appeal or to overrule appeals of decisions made locally but then you know if no one's testing you can't appeal a non-test because there's nothing to actually analyze so does WADA have the the ability to enforce that there has to be a minimum standard um, of testing or of um, processes from each of the member organizations or is, is that also very much open to negotiation? No absolutely so WADA is responsible for what we what they call compliance to the world anti-doping code and there are minimum standards that need to be fulfilled by each of the countries and if they don't fulfill it um, then there's a declaration of non-compliance and non-compliance comes with consequences everything from severe consequences to being not being permitted to go to the olympic games to more minor ones of having the national anti-doping agency suspended and someone taking over their programs um I think that needs to be enhanced. I think that needs to be improved because, as I said, I don't feel there's a level playing field right right now out there. And and to add to the complexity, is international federations also have the ability to test and run testing programs, and that provides a little bit more of a safeguard because the international federations can start looking at the top level athletes. But it's it's limited, and, and the resources they put into it as well. Um, but there is a an additional safeguard that's put in. But I still think more work needs to be done. 
And, and would you say when WADA, for example, are, are looking at enforcing amongst the countries, is that, is that, is that very clearly defined in what the process is and, and what um, the findings or the, the, um, the punishments will be? Or is that also fairly political based on WADA members? And so therefore it could be that a country that who is um, not enforcing fully or not doing their job could lobby still so that they're not actually treated as harshly as other countries. Yeah, um, so the rules are there, so they, they're, they're very well defined in terms of compliance and what you need to do and what you can't do. Um, and there's, there's an independent body called the Compliance Review Committee that reviews, under WADA, that reviews any of these potential non-compliance. But then it goes to the WADA Executive Committee to either accept or put that recommendation back to the Compliance Review Committee to make a different one. The, the issue is and we've been vocal about this, is the Executive Committee of WADA is made up of 50% of the Olympic movement and 50% of governments. So the Olympic movement has an interest in protecting the brand, their own brand, and governments want to make sure they're making choices that are not affecting uh, their international relations with countries. And the difference as well is the Olympic movement is very organized and they work as a collective. And the governments around the table do not operate the same way. A lot of them come into the meeting three weeks before getting briefed, understanding the issues, and having to make decisions uh, that are probably not as well informed uh, as they should be. So we've been advocating for an independent executive committee that is not linked funding to decision making. Mm-hmm. And they're independent people that have an interest in growing the organization and growing the, the fight against doping and sport and taking politics away from any of the decision-making. And, and say that you mentioned that WADA does have the ability to take over the programs of a, a local country. Um, is, would WADA then have to fully fund that from their own budgets? Or would they have the power to co-opt the budgets of the previous um, infor- local enforcements? So uh, there's there's a prime example is when Russia was de- declared non-compliant for the first time, uh, their program was taken over, and I remember going to Russia, and we had an agreement with the UK Anti-Doping that they would take over uh, responsibility of full oversight of the Russian Anti-Doping Agency and testing of, of Russian athletes. That was funded entirely by Russia, so Russia had to had to cover the costs. We, WADA at the time, brought in two international experts, two independent experts to oversee the rebuild of the Russian anti, excuse me, Russian anti-doping organization. So that was taken over, uh, and that's how the mechanism worked. And obviously, we're in a very, di- very different situation today. But that's what happened uh, right up until September 2018. The UK anti-doping was was operating, and managing, and overseeing the testing program in Russia. And. It's good. I think most people I know, their view and their expectation is almost that that's what they want to happen for every potentially suspicious country. And we, you know, we've mentioned the Southern Islands, obviously, you know, wouldn't have budget. But in reality, 
we know who the organizations are that are most likely to cheat we know the countries that are most likely to podium and i don't really care if there's an you know a country who are drugged up to their eyeballs to come in 50th place um it's about you know we in reality it's it's china in the past who've who've been horrific it's russia who've been horrific and at the moment i don't know if they are horrific or not but if we look at that East African triangle, we want testers all over that, mainly because I, I want to be able to believe Kipchoge and I hope he is clean and I want him to be clean. And I he he may be the cleanest person on earth, but it, it just frustrates me that they are making millions as an organization and some of them as individuals. And I don't know how much it would cost to have one testing unit to fully clarify their situation. But from my point of view, it would be totally worth it for them for even their sponsorship would go up by paying for that out of their own money and being able to, to absolutely prove 100% that they are all clean. Yeah. I think we need to take a, step back and, and reevaluate how we're doing things. And we, we, we want to see water successful. We want to see water grow. We want to see water be stronger. We want to see the global anti-doping movement stronger. So we do not want to see it die or, or to crumble to the ground, but it may have to in order to get a solution. And one thing that we've looked at and, and recognizing how political sport has gotten, um, governments use it as a geopolitical force. Uh, at the Olympic Games to showcase the the power of their countries and to showcase how important their countries are. I mean, leading up to the Olympic Games, if you're hosting a, a Games, you're investing so much money to make sure that your country is on the top three podium uh, in the, at the, the very end of the Games. Um, I mean, the investment's huge, so, and that money usually comes from government that's investing into that. Mm. So what we would like to do is take a step back and, and recognizing that it is political, that there are geopolitical forces, is to take the corrupt, corruption index. Because corruption is not going, the sport is not above corruption. And take the corruption index, do an evaluation. If you are a certain level on the corruption index, you can't have an anti-doping laboratory. Mm. Uh, because there's potential corruption that's going to happen within the anti-doping world, like we saw in Russia. Um, that there may be need for an international oversight of of that national anti-doping program, where someone internationally needs to be having oversight of them and in those in those offices, there may be have to be more um, more stringent compliance procedures that need to be carried out. And I think that's where we see a simple solution. But it, it it's hard to call people. People don't like to be called out that they're high on the corruption index because um, there's a lot of denial. And I, I think there, as well. Is, is, sorry. No, you go ahead, Jenny. I was going to say, the, 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 David's characterization there that there are some nations that um, are worse than others, um, actually, kind of prefiguring what you were saying there in terms of the corruption index. It, having been on the inside, is, is it clear that there is a, a spectrum of, um, uh, n of, of people who are consistent non-compliers who are a, a, a constantly a risk of this compared with another group or is it is it a much patchier situation than that i i think there there's a there's a lot of disparity out there <clears throat> and i was part of i mean i worked at water for from 2000 to 2018 and when we established the, the first world anti-doping code, 
it was a new thing globally. And to be realistic, to expect everyone to figure out how to implement, what to do and how to do it was a difficult challenge. So what was done was there was something called regional anti-doping organizations set up. Uh, when we ended, there was 16, when I left, there were 16 regional anti-doping organizations evolving, I think it was 137 countries, to be able to educate, to be able to share resources and commit to each other to help enhance anti-doping uh, in their countries. That was the initial start, and I think it was successful to, to educate and to inform people. But I think it falls short a little bit because the onus and responsibility and ownership has not been embraced by those regions and by those countries to invest in cleaning up sport and to putting the money. So there is disparity, there's lack of funding, and there's the lack of desire to take it seriously. And and I, Auntie, I always used to say to myself that you had to build strong relationships in each country in order to convince them that it was important to do because nobody well, nobody goes to work in the morning saying we can't wait to do anti-doping yeah uh, <laughs> you know it's it's not it's, it's always a second thought and and, it, and it's 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 a pain it's hard to do it's controversial uh, but it's a much needed um, thing that's needed to to level the playing field because you we can't we can't enter into sport allowing an open gate to let everyone dope because we'll lose everything we believe in both sport and and I think it will fall into a place that would no one would ever be interested in watching in the end. And and just out of interest, because um, you know Jody has a, a really good question to do with where the spectrum is and also you know how if it's obvious which countries and and who is potentially ducking out when they have those six-year reviews that you mentioned where the new agreements are defined and feedback is given is there even disparity then about some countries who are, do some countries try to loosen the rules or is it always um do people always pay lip service at least but then just don't enforce when the rules have happened yeah i think what you see is though again we go back to the ones that are doing very little in anti-doping, um, not investing in it. To be honest with you, the feedback you get is almost next to nothing from them. So it's the ones that are interested in the business, that are interested, that are investing in it. They're the ones providing the majority of the comments. And I think overall, there's there's a nature of good faith to try to improve the rules. So I don't think anyone's going in there to, to soften them or weaken them. There may be some that want to protect rules against the sports. But when it comes to enhancing against the athletes, um, I don't see that at all. I, I do see the potential weakening, or trying to weaken the rules on the consequences to international federations that may not be abiding by the rules. That I do see. And um, something else that I think is often very confusing, if unless you you know look into it greatly, is even among countries where, in theory, we should be clean, you know the cleanest countries. We we have a low corruption, um, and but you see things like Mo Farah not answering his doorbell for a whole hour when they're ringing to test him. You hear about. Um, everyone now has an inhaler. Everyone suddenly, you know, ADHD uh, pills or Coleman didn't answer the door twice in a year. Um, and so completely skipped the third one. So like what, 
how how easy is it to actually enforce even when the agencies want to and and like what other different how can we interpret what we read about athletes and how can we tell when someone is suspicious or where someone is unlucky or where someone is just a freak of nature like how how do we easily discern amongst those different um, things we hear in the media it's it's a difficult answer i think um one of the things that i know that's being developed and i think will contribute to building more confidence is artificial intelligence and working out there's there's so many there's so much big data out there to if you can enter it into um, an artificial intelligence system where you track athletes performance um they're both increase and decrease you track how they enter their whereabouts information you track where they're traveling when they're traveling uh, if they're in high-risk areas and to build it into a, a an intelligent program that will give you the highest rate of success in terms of catching cheats. So that's one area. The other area is we, I think, the, the, the microdosing is a major issue with, with athletes. So microdosing, because there are threshold levels that we set um, at the laboratory that uh, if it's below a threshold, they won't report the, the substance. Mm-hmm. And I think we're a little bit too conservative uh, in, in the anti-doping world, that we need to take chances. We need to be willing to move forward um, and take those chances in bringing forward potential violations and, mm-hmm. and losing, but not being afraid to bring them forward. So getting rid of that conservative approach where lawyers either say, we're not going to run this because we're not going to win, um, versus let's do it and let's see how we go. Um, it, it, feels like, it feels like it needs something like that because it's really interesting, isn't it? Because it's since uh, effectively the, 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 whole, the whole Russian thing has happened and things like Icarus and, and all of that come out. It, it, it used to be the case of like drug cheats were seen as kind of a one-off thing. And now, like, like David says, you see amazing feats by athletes and it's always in the back mm-hmm. of your mind. It's just the assumption now is they could be doping. And the trust has just been completely, completely destroyed. So you, you think by... By, by being less conservative and actually going harder on things like the, 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 the micro-dosing, that, that will help restore some of that trust. Yeah, I, I fully agree with you. I mean, it's, it, it, it's, it's sad when now we see great performances being questioned because every yeah. great performance is being tainted to say, oh, I wonder what he or she is on Yeah. versus what a great victory. Um, and it's... It's everywhere in sport trying to push those boundaries. If you look, we can even see what Nike's done with their, their new shoes, uh, with their new marathon shoes. So always pushing the boundaries, always trying to find ways to find that competitive edge, whether it be equipment, whether it be doping, um, because sport is a multi-billion dollar industry. And as I said, it's an industry, it's political um, and we're at a state now, I think, at a turning point that part of the solution as well is if you bring athletes to the table and you bring them as a part of the solution, identifying athletes know who's out there and who's doping. Yeah. They understand. They know they're, they're what's going on. And you bring them a part of the solution, I think we'll see some positive change. But until that time, you're going to have people working in, in offices that are trying to resolve the problems when they're not engaging and involving the main stakeholder, the athletes, to be a part of that solution, um, because it's not being done now. 
And are, are I, brands are brands partly responsible for this as well? Because I think we've seen with the with the with the Oregon project how closely involved brands are with with this kind of thing. And for 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 them to be, they they seem very closely involved. And we've talked about this on podcast without actually knowing anything. But <laughs> is it? <laughs> but again, it was just pure summarization. But yeah, you know, the 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 extent to which they are involved with, with with these these training camps and everything, and and with the performance of them, is it unrealistic to think that brands don't know what's going on as well? I, I can't say for everyone. Um... I do when I I think sponsors are a part of the problem, um, and the reason I say they're part of the problem because they haven't been part of the solution. I believe that anyone sponsoring the the Olympic movement or an international event or international have a have a social responsibility to demand certain things from that money, and and when you and when you put that money into events that comes from athlete welfare to athlete protection. Uh, to demanding a level playing field, putting potentially some resources into supporting that anti-doping movement. Because again, if, if, if the brand is being tarnished, um, then the brand, brand hurts. But right yeah. now, I, I think sponsors uh, turn a blind eye. I think they, they're, they're happy to have one or two that potentially could be doped and be caught. Because it far outweighs the the ones that aren't, and you know, if you look at the Nike Oregon project, um, that was that, that was a pretty severe uh, situation that was going on with the abuse of athletes, with potential doping of athletes, and Nike's response was telling. And this Nike mm-hmm. Nike is a huge powerhouse when it comes to their global reach, and and the fact that they shut down the project immediately is telling. And for Nike to do that when they normally stick behind their brands and their athletes normally, um, that it, to me that was that was sending a clear message that they wanted to close this thing down quickly uh, because they knew they were in the wrong. I know they're appealing to the decision, but brands and, and sponsors, I don't believe, are fulfilling their responsibility in trying to make this a better environment because yeah. it will. Yeah. Well, would you would you say that Nike did close it down immediately? Because like, my understanding was that as soon as some of the allegations of Salazar came out, Mo um, Mo kind of went back after the BBC documentary and and said, "Well, I'm going to speak to him. I'm going to find out," and then didn't really comment on it. And it wasn't actually until quite a bit later that it seemed that Nike finally um, took action. Yeah, I mean, my understanding is they did close it down, not immediately, but they did close it down, of course. Mm. Uh, and I think the pressure that that was there, the more athletes coming out and speaking up uh, in terms of not being afraid to speak up, and a lot of them were afraid mm. uh, because pressure was being put on quite a few of them to, to keep their mouth quiet. And I'm still speaking with athletes that want to come forward with information. Um, so, yeah, I think, again, it shows you if you look at the activism and the changes that are happening right now in sport, where are they being driven by? So the first is females. Mm. If you look at the Nike Orban project, who has spoken up in terms of what was going on, what was happening in there? It was mostly women. Yeah. If you look at gymnastics in the U.S., both male and female uh, gymnasts were being abused. Who were the ones to be vocal and to stand up most was the female athletes. If you look at uh, ice hockey in the United States, the women's ice hockey team 
uh, threatened not to compete at the world championships if they weren't to, going to be paid uh, even to, to a standard that was acceptable. And they stood their ground. If you look at the, the maternity leave situation and getting maternity, who's standing up is the women. And I talked about this at, at, a, at a school, at a college, um, three weeks ago. And I said, what I'm finding is the men around the table normally think they can use soft politics inside the organization, outsmart, be a part of the solution internally. And that feeds into the sports. They want people to come in to play the game inside and never to get out and speak about outside. And that you play the long game that way. And we're seeing women's soccer um, with the U.S. Uh, team in, in, that won the World Cup mm. and, and fighting for equal pay and equal rights. And to me, that's where we're seeing some pretty strong athlete activism trying to change the face of sport for the better. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and, and kind of going back to what you were saying about kind of Project Oregon and that, do, do you think it is possible to have a rogue coach whose athletes, even though some of them are doping, others them aren't, or to have a rogue athlete in a, tr- a very tight training camp who is getting drugs by himself without anyone else's knowledge? Or do you think that the, uh, the what is becoming more um, prevalent in, in our thought that you are damaged by association, do you think that is fair? I think that's a tough one to to give a direct answer to <clears throat> without the proof of, of knowing. Uh, you you can you can base it on research that you know, there's how many athletes grow up wanting to go in sport and say I can't wait till that day comes where I can dope. Not mm-hmm. one athlete gets in the sport thinking I can't wait to dope. And I don't know if you recall, but the earlier this year the the raids in Austria. Um, where you had the cross-country skiers um, doping, and there was a young boy that was was sitting in his hotel room, um, and the police raided the hotel room, and he was sitting with a a infusion in his arm, and the look of fear and terror on that boy's boy, twenty years old, face spoke a million words, and I'm sure he didn't go into sport waiting to to do those infusions um and Mm. and compete so there is a lot of influence there's a lot of actors coaches are built on athletes successes physicians are built on athletes successes and if the athletes aren't successful then you either lose your job or your move decide to do something else so the pressure is everywhere to see performances increased and, and winning enhanced so i think more and more we're seeing systems that are in place. We're seeing teams that are working together to to bring better performances, whether it's, as I said before, whether it's equipment or doping. Uh, I think it is becoming less the individual actor deciding to do it. Um, you know, that you have the, someone sitting in a hotel room by themselves and nobody knows uh, versus it's an it's approach that everyone's engaged within the team. But I, I mean, but with that said... I think it's important. I think there's still a lot of clean athletes out there. Um, I think there are athletes there that are competing on a level playing field uh, and are frustrated with what they're seeing and, and want to see change. And, and if you were to say, um, obviously this is a complete guess, but what percentage of 
podiums at the next Olympics, do you think won't be by clean athletes? David, do you think I'm that silly to answer that question? (laughs) (laughs) Damn it, damn it! But what I can tell you... (laughs) (laughs) You know, what I can tell you is in in the World Championships in Daegu, Mm. and I forget the year, the World Anti-Doping Agency and the International Athletics Federation ran a, a prevalence study on the, per- the percentage of athletes that were doping. Um, and that prevalence study showed between 28 and 25 and 28% of athletes that were competing at the Worlds um, at one point had doped. Wow. So that, and that was, that was replicated um, in a study that was done after at the Pan Arab Games yeah. in Doha, and similar numbers came out. My understanding, WADA is trying to bring that project back, and it's under under play under go right now to to try to come up again with the matrix to see what the prevalence is because we never if we don't know what the prevalence is we don't know we're being successful right Right. now it's less than one percent of athletes that are being caught for doping is it higher than that i believe it is how high we don't know and until we know that you know if there's any other industry um when you have let's take something simple like drunk drinking and driving Police and they do studies on prevalence of what the prevalence rates of drinking, drinking and driving are. When are the most likely times for people to be drinking and driving, and when they should be setting up roadblocks and, and random checks? What time of day? All of these things are in place because they know what the uh, somewhat what the prevalence rate is, mm-hmm. and they know what when if they're being effective in catching people that are drinking and driving. So I think you need to do the same thing in, in the anti-doping industry. You need a benchmark to. To find out whether you're successful, and if you're not, you need to find out why and how you can be. And, and is that and, is that prevalence um, uh, split equally um, across uh, across nations, or is that concentrated um, with a few? Are there a few that are tend to be the the ones that are an issue, or is it is it a more complex picture than that? Yeah, I mean, the report is there, Jody, and to be honest with you, I don't remember the uh, the exact numbers, uh, okay. but the report is public, but I don't have it offhand. And to, to bring us back to what we were talking about at the top of the, the interview, so do you, th- do you think there are current clean Russians then, or do you think that that was such a systematic doping that even those who can prove that they haven't been unclean probably are unclean it's a great question and i guess part of the thing we've come up with in terms of but it hasn't been just global athlete but it's been global athlete the u.s athletes i know the canadian athletes did a survey uh the uk athletes came out um, and other national programs came out and and requesting a complete ban from russia from the olympic games and when i say complete ban it means the athletes Mm -hmm. and it's that's a hard statement to make when you are an organization representing athletes and protecting athletes because you would think that if we 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 should be taking the side of athletes and mm-hmm. allowing them to compete and the reason we have that this discussion is a couple reasons one the majority of russian athletes that we've spoken to uh, the whistleblowers that come forward have indicated they're part of a system that they don't have a choice so you're either in it or you're out and if you don't want to abide by the rules, when mm-hmm. I say the rules, what you're asked to do, you're, you're cast aside and asked to be removed from training camps. So you don't have, really have a choice. And 
right now with the manipulation of the data, which the limbs data, there's over 145 athletes that we have no idea whether they are clean and who they are, and they could be going to the Tokyo Olympic Games. So we're looking at the long-term goal here, because if Russia does not feel the consequences, when I say banning the athletes from the Olympic Games, then I don't think we'll ever see a cultural change in Russia, where they have to feel the hit and they have to feel the pain in order to make change to help the future athletes and the better welfare athletes in the, in the, in the future. Because what happened in Rio, what happened in Pyeongchang uh, at the Winter Olympic Games, even though the Russian Olympic Committee was banned at the Pyeongchang Games, they went back to Russia and celebrated yeah. their victories and, and, and gave them cars and they were heroes in the country. And nobody even cared that the National Olympic Committee was banned. And things continued to go on. Right up until January 2019, they continued to manipulate data and undermine the integrity of sport. And to have leniency for that, um, to me, is an unjust, uh, unjust answer to uh, something that has, has severely undermined the integrity of sport. And as I said, I think WADA won the headline wars because a lot of people saw Russia was banned. Yeah, and from the games, but they they really aren't, and we'll see. I know Rosada is appealing to to the court of arbitration of sport, and that boggles my mind as well. And maybe I'll go a little bit further because what happened with when WADA declared Russia non-compliant this time, they had a caveat to say the Russian anti-doping organization has been a part of the solution, so they have reformed themselves. We are not going to stop them from testing. So they're going to do testing. They're going to do result management. And they're going to be part of the change of culture in Russia. So if they're part of the change in culture in Russia, and the ban has been put on the Olympic Committee and the governments, why are they appealing it? Mm-hmm. Yeah, combined with They're supposed to be there. It, this is an opportunity where if the anti-doping organization is trying to improve things, they have leverage now because... The Olympic Committee's banned, the government officials are banned, and they're the ones with leverage to sign off and say, yeah, over the four years, we've done something differently. And if the athletes are banned, and, and, it, and it just creates an ability to make change. And I, my fear is that the future Russian athletes will not see that change and will continue to have the same problems in the future. And, and do you think to a certain extent we're always going to have um, big issues when there is such prevalent corruption in governments and it is such a, a powerful geopolitical tool. I mean, I think the potential is there, yeah. Um, you know, is Russia the only country? Um, probably not. Um, you know, and I had, I won't give you specifics, but I had someone say that to me in person, a fairly high Russian authority saying, you know, we're not the only ones. I said, you may not be the only ones, but you're the ones that got caught. Mm. Um, and and when you do get caught, you, there there's there's expectations and consequences to that, and and they're not severe enough. Uh, they do fall short, short, and and I think what we're going to see if one, either the appeal is won by Russia, and if the appeal is run by Russia, we're in trouble because the Russian file ends, mm. the data is manipulated, and the case is closed because you can't go anywhere else after CAS the Court of Arbitration of Sport. If it's the, the case is upheld, it is upheld, and 
Russian athletes are going to be competing at in Tokyo, and if they're going to be competing and they're winning medals after medals, I think you're going to see podium protests by athletes. I think you're going to have athletes talking about boycotting ahead of the games. So I think it's going to be a very difficult next six months leading up to Tokyo 2020 where athletes um, are going to understand exactly what happened, what the consequences are, and what actions they feel they need to take in their own hands. And it's, we've seen it before. Lily King, the U.S. swimmer in, in Rio, because the, the swimmers from Russia were winning, she, she was vocal about her discontent. You had it at the World Swimming Championships uh, when athletes took a podium protest um, in the Sun Young case uh, with an athlete that just had a court of arbitration appeal. And I think their stance wasn't against Sun Yang. It was against the inability for the federation to expedite his hearing before the world championships, either to either that he was found innocent or guilty, but the cloud of suspicion was gone. And athletes are frustrated. And that's why we're seeing more athlete activism and athletes speaking up to demand change. And do you think that's going to have a knock-on effect on sponsors and also on the viewership? I, I think so. Um, like everything, it's it's a tricky one. And I'll give you an example that the Pan American Games, which happens in, in, in North America, <clears throat> there was an athlete that stood up and did a podium protest, uh, two athletes from the United States. Um, more of a, a political protest of what was happening in the, in the United States of America. Th those podium protests end up drawing more people to the TV to watch the Pan-American Games because a lot of people had no idea what the Pan-American mm. Games were about. Mm. So you have a potential of having a quick win on people watching that would normally not turn on because there are controversial things happening. But long term, it will affect the brand for sure. Mm. And, and sponsors need to step up as I said, to to be a part of the solution and find a better way forward in making sport accountable, making sport more responsible, and enhancing the athlete welfare where they have a better say and and in the end more compensation in the end. And and do you think that bans for coaches and for athletes should be for life? You know, athletes have demanded that in the past. Um, where they said a lot of athletes have been vocal about, yeah, you get one chance for if it's a serious substance on EPO or, or anabolic steroids, we'd like to see them banned for life. But the reality is that those are not proportionate sanctions you can give someone, uh, a lifetime sentence for a one-time occurrence. And that was a decision made by um, the Court of Human Rights in terms of they're not, it's not a proportionate ban. Ah, uh, okay. And it cannot be upheld. So um, while some have called for it, it you, you, can't, you can't give a lifetime ban. Well, amazing. Thank you so much for going over just things we've been discussing for months and months and months without any kind of knowledge. So you've really helped, uh, <laughs> you really helped fill in the blanks. And um, is there anything we can do as listeners, you know, as, as supporters to, I guess, to help your movement and to help your organization or to help athletes themselves stay clean? Yeah, I mean, I think the, the, the advice I give athletes is you, you need to speak up when you see something happening. There, there's whistleblower lines that you can come forward and, and share that information. Um, being, being silence is being complicit. And mm -hmm. when you know something 
bring it forward. There are safe environments to bring it forward and, and be a part of the solution. And, you know, a colleague of mine uh, often said to me, if you're not a part of the solution, you're part of the problem. And if that's the advice I would give in terms of, of moving forward is be a part of the solution, stand for what's right, stand for principle over politics and, and come forward when you know something's not, not right. And even if you're not 100% sure, at least you draw some attention to it. And, and if people would like to get involved in Global Athlete, what's the best way for them to, to find you and to do that? Yeah, so they can go to our website and sign up and be a, a supporter. It's www.globalathlete.org and our social media, our Twitter handle is Global Athlete HQ, uh, where we can follow what we're doing uh, currently. And in the new year, as I said, we'll be coming out with a study on, on the, the expenditures in the Olympic movement and also releasing the results of a survey that we've done on uh, both athlete rights and in terms of uh, marketing and, and freedom of expression and also anti-doping rights, uh, which will be launched next year. Amazing. Well, thank you so much for coming on the podcast, but also thank you so much for the work you're doing because it's a sport we love. And, you know, our, your frustrations are our frustrations. So, you know, the, the more you achieve, the, the better this world will be, especially in our sport. So thank you very much. I appreciate it. Thanks. I'm off to go play ice hockey right now. It's a, it's a Christmas, pre-Christmas Eve tradition. So, Well, good luck with the game, Rob, and make sure you keep it clean. Cheers. <laughs> Have a good one, guys. <laughs> bye. All right, bye. Bye. That oh. was... Um, that was... Uh... There's something about that. It was both surprising and not surprising. Uh, and I don't know how yeah. I feel now. Well, because I, I, <laughs> I honestly didn't think he was going to suggest that it was as, uh, as widespread as it was. And all of our, all of our previous perceptions um, and things that we talked about are kind of right based on what, <laughs> what we've talked about and what he's just said. Yeah. So, I mean, it, does, it, it, it really does put a massive like, um, dark cloud over any sporting event now and you know with the olympic games this year and everything if we if we'd have had longer we'd have had longer what i'd love to have done is just to have him where we're like okay rob just nod or shake <laughs> your head <laughs> we're gonna go through this list we're gonna go through this list yeah like hmm farah <laughs> <laughs> Mr. Gatland's <laughs> like it's very like it's very clear it's very well known who who is doing it. it's like it sounds like it's it's very very similar to the um but I get uh, the, 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 yeah, the France situation yeah, that it's yeah just, I, I get the sense everyone we suspect is is that we kind of feel now yeah, it does. It does feel like that. And but but, but like you said, uh, and the other thing was, I think it was very clear about the part that brands play in this and sponsors play in this. And you, you're absolutely right that if you were a sponsor, why would you be turning a blind eye? You you know, is it is it that people generally don't care who's who's uh, like the general public, the people that buy um, you know Nike or Coca Cola or whatever it is, they don't care whether they're doping or not. Really, but all they want to do yeah. is they want to see a, a sporting event and, and stuff like that. And they they just they just don't care about that. And that's why the performance bonus and 
Yeah, they're not they're not interested. They don't care about all that. They just like see people run fast. You know, the, the headlines in the newspaper. You know, the three seconds of video um, clip on the on the news or whatever. And that's that's all they care about. They don't care about whether people have taken the drugs and things like that. And so, from a sponsor perspective, it doesn't really matter. They don't. You know, it's too much of a hassle for them to go into the oh, let's you know disprove that all the all the rumors around it because it seems like it's so everything's so intricately connected but i think Mm -hmm. the big surprise out of all of that was how even things how backward and how uh entrenched um people's positions are and um people's interests are even Mm. within organizations of specific sports in specific countries like the example Kara- about irish karate, karate. what like the? you know if you can do stuff like that then pff, no wonder you i know, mean that's people. an oxymoron isn't it irish <laughs> karate. Didn't even, I, just, I, I expected that would be a google whack if anything but um but it does make you wonder like how do you in so even so after the last Olympics, there was a lot of talk in the UK about how like, the the British performance wasn't up to what the expectations were, partly because it never could be after 2012, but on how there were loads of fourths. And we, we, we had, a, as a nation, we had a disproportionate number of people coming in fourth. And if you actually assessed the performance of the UK based on first to 10th, we did incredibly well. But because the cutoff of the podium is made there, we didn't. But how do you, how do you, as an organization like UK Athletics or, um, you know, England Athletics, whoever it may be, how do you incentivize and how do you track and how do you, um, do things like bonuses for success without putting too much pressure that leads to doping yeah. how, can you do that is it possible to and do these countries do we need to do, do and that, that's, that's i think that's a frustrating thing is that you know the what really should happen is that no one who's involved in the infrastructure and the organization of associations should be allowed any kind of bonus if anyone is done for for drug cheating. So it should be inherent in not only the values, because values, I mean, people always talk about mission values, but like the mission values of Nike don't determine whether they sponsor this bullshit the financial rewards or the promotion targets of their employees of what determine what the ethics of that organization are yeah and that needs to be the same for all of these associations for all of the governing bodies for even the olympics themselves like if it if the olympics had rules where funding was cut and salaries were would would were knocked down for the next four year cycle based on how many people were done for drugs. Yeah. That would change things. Yeah, absolutely. But, I, but there's too much vested, and like they could do that. At UK UK athletics, they absolutely could. And actually, Sport England 
could insist on that and lottery funding could insist on that but all if you think how annoying it's been to set up the running club where we've got to have like a, a welfare officer even though it's all online yeah. and they don't, I mean, they can't even begin to understand as an organization, the technicalities of like online bullying, but I think how anal some of the rules are and you're like, why do you not have performance related pay based on clean athletes and actually more than performance and, and it could even be bonuses, you know, would it push it under the rug or would it actually ensure that every sink and until every part of the sport is motivated by clean sport then it's gonna it's gonna work against it yeah yeah absolutely absolutely it's um uh, it just the, the thing is it feels like all the organization the way the organizations are structured the politics within it the money and everything it's just it's so it's not focused towards towards that goal and I think you're right like there's going to have to be some kind of fundamental change which I cannot see coming in any way I guess the the issue is there's no the the world essentially is corrupt and and governments corrupt and nations are corrupt and that will always be the case to a lesser extent than others at times but that's not going to change but also I think the, the, the worry is and the trouble is the reality is that the less corrupt countries are white and Western in general. That's a huge, obviously, broad, sweeping statement. But well, I how... think I, I don't think it's, it's the. I think the corruption scale that they yeah. that he was talking about is 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 a big determiner of that. That if corruption yeah. is endemic within an organisation within a within a, a government. Yeah. Within the, the company's uh, the com- country's structures, then they are more likely to also have endemic problems within their within their doping, uh, within their uh, anti-doping. Um, actually, I, I, I wish we'd have had time to ask a few more questions to Rob because we didn't actually ask him why he left WADA, and it would be interesting to know was this just a better career opportunity? Because the, the new organization, Global Athlete, isn't just about drugs. But it, 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 it would be interesting whether it was because he didn't think he could solve it from within. Well, I think fundamentally, isn't it, that WADA doesn't represent athletes, does it? That's the thing. It, and mm. it, it, this, the whole like Global Athlete thing is about representing them um, and having, a, yeah, actually having, that, having that voice. I, I, I'd, I'd be interested when you have that situation where... Um, athletes within a country are they have that situation like in russia where the russian you either buy into the system and Mm. take drugs or you Mm. don't compete and so what happens in that who comes down on their side Um, and it does it does that's the thing it does sound like all russians should be banned yes i mean it's very very clear um from what you're saying that all all russians should be banned that actually that now having spoken to him it seems like there's a bit of a fudge on the on the issue Um, what i'd love as well say say his organization does become increasingly more powerful which i hope it will imagine if his organization had had an agreement like the 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 organ the people in the athletes in it all agreed and actually a a lot of whistleblowing is the fear of being the first person and this organization shields against that imagine if they said okay we are saying uh, collectively all athletes say no one is prepared to share a podium with a russian athlete 
So if I win gold and the Russians in third, I am not collecting my medal. And if all of the athletes said that, it wouldn't happen. Russia would be banned. All of them would be banned. Because the Olympic Committee just care about money. In my well, that's quite a bold state. That's probably a, but it's probably true actually. I wouldn't go so far as to say. Well, I'd, yeah, I mean, I'd say I'd go for so far as to say that that's absolutely true. Yeah. And so, if the athletes said that, and it it just takes an organisation to really capture people's hearts, and actually, it just takes one powerful athlete to be like, I'm with these guys. Say, if you're saying Bolt was still around, you went, I'm with these guys. I am saying I'm not getting on. In fact, Usain Bolt could say it. There's no way Russians get. No, I was going to say, thing. yeah, that doesn't. <laughs> <laughs> it's pretty safe. Pretty safe in his. Uh, unless unless Warren Gatland was uh, was running. I mean, he might he might switch. You never know. He's he's, he's now he knows they've got the best drugs. Um, he might be tempted. <laughs> but um, but yeah, um, the uh, that's the thing. And that's a good thing. You you would have all the sprinters saying that, and you'd get all the athletes who weren't who had no worry about the Russians being on their podiums coming out saying it, and that would then create a critical mass that would allow the other athletes who are competing against Russians. You know, you're you're tracking you're tracking field sports and to say, great, we are no longer putting our head above the parapet by saying this. Well, it's the that, whole idea of it like a trade union, isn't it? That's, I mean, that's how it works, isn't it? With that, that collective element to it. Well, I, but a trade union where the trade union works because everyone's in it and no one will always be in this. But a trade, if, if you've got a lot of athletes and then you have the big names, because really, if we're talking about how many athletes in the world, how many Olympians can get the, the front page of every newspaper in the world just by making a statement? It's not many, and you but need you, those people. Yeah, but the thing is, do you would you say we talk about someone like Usain Bolt and everything? Who you know would he would he really risk his contract? Um, I don't think it would risk the contract though, because if you who's who's going to turn around to Usain Bolt and say because you've done something that is morally correct, we're going to end our contract. Oh my, that would be suicide. Like Nike has to pretend that they don't support drugs cheats. So if someone came out, I mean, if someone came out and explicitly said, Mo Farah, I'm doing this because of you support Mo Farah Nike. But if someone came out saying we stand against drugs, because remember, all drugs cheats talk about how much they hate drug cheats. Because they true. probably do. It makes it harder for them, doesn't it? If everyone's they should, the drug. What, what they should do is they should double bluff. And say they absolutely love drugs cheats because then no one would suspect them then. <laughs> yes, yes, yeah, yeah. There's probably a WhatsApp group somewhere of all the drugs cheats who are like, "You guys tried this one; it's delicious." But um, but interestingly enough, um, and this has been quite a long episode, so maybe we'll split it. But someone we run against, who is clubmate of uh, CFTB, has just been done for drugs. What? Yeah, he's just been done for drugs. For it's, um, uh, oh, wait a minute, he's a clubmate of CFTB. Yeah, he's a team like. Ah, and, no smoke and, without fire. 
Normally, <laughs> the whole organization is uh, is infected. But it's it's been really interesting because I've I've been I've been talking to him at the at the Christmas party, and um, and just quick shout out to Rich for um for bringing his second place Bournemouth Marathon prize for the raffle. That is a genius prize. So someone has got a trophy second place at the Bournemouth Half Marathon. No, Bournemouth Marathon what was that half, which um which is impressive. It's an impressive thing to have, but um, yeah, that's it was how little. That's talk- how little he thinks of people coming <laughs> second. <laughs> but no, no, it's because it's that was the one where he he got upgraded to first. Oh, yeah, yeah. So he gave his second place away because he's now he's got the real deal. But um, yeah, it's really interesting talking to him because not only does it, as you say, cast doubt on the coaches, the other runners, um, but also people are already going back and doing all the calculations for the last few seasons based on Wood, because Wimbledon are a, a, a really big club, a good club. They won the Surrey League, which is a very competitive cross-country league. Yeah. And people have gone back and started calculating, well, would they have won the league without this guy? Because he, he was a kind of low 220 marathon runner. You know, why, he was... Sorry, why, why was he doping? Why, what? why which is and you know obviously want to get him on at some time but i think it'll probably be a couple of years before because he has ruined his life he's absolutely ruined his life because he can't compete running at all but also that stigma is it's a big stigma to have. Oh, and I, is he going to go into cycling? Because it'll be he's right gonna, there, that's right. He's going into OCR. <laughs> He'll be like, welcome right. back. Welcome. Welcome. We, we've been <laughs> looking for types like you for a long time. So he's, he's now representing Russia for the next Olympics. <laughs> and, uh, but, but yeah, I'd love to chat to him. To And, and I don't think we'll, we'll ever will, just because I think he's, you know, he's, he's probably decimated him personally. Um, and friendship groups and his family life and everything. But, it does, you know. It, it, we 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 always think about doping as being out there, but when the the quote the number that Rob mentioned of of athletes at the top end who do it, and even after the last Ironman World Champs, there was it three four people were banned who were caught. Imagine they're the ones who were caught. Yeah. And how easy is it to to dope out when you're not at the Ironman World Champs? probably yeah. quite easy like he's being tested for these things not I know many. it's because of all this that I don't I just don't try harder because I know that it's just you know, I'd be winning stuff left right and centre probably but yeah, it's just you, you know the thing is if everyone you know everyone's doping you're like well what's the point what's the point but it, it's really interesting because it's it's all about personal pressure and actually people say people are always saying why why would you dope at a lower level but if I doped I could probably have a career as a runner, like salary wise, because it would take me into the Robbie Britton level um, of ability. Because I'm only, let's say, if I did a, if I did a, re- yeah, I, 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 because ultras are not as competitive, it would take me to a level where I think I'd be able to get enough of a salary from promotion and whatever, you know, all these other things. Yeah. And you know, I'm the type of person who would sniff out easy wins but also great stories and create myself a um i guess give give myself the 
the halo of a runner who was far better than I was, which which is what I do anyway. But if I was actually quite good, the halo I create would be even better than that. Because um, yeah, I could then just run around in all these winning all these ultra trails and stuff around the world and not utmbs but the smaller ones the multi-day ones because not many people do those yeah. so um and, and so it, it does make a difference and this person represent i'm not going to say his name but um he represented his country and that certainly is a pressure and a kudos um certainly if you're involved in the community of that country that's a huge huge badge of honor so the incentives are out there, you know, the, and it's, it, I, I'd, I'd love to, it's annoying being injured because I'd love to actually speak more with my clubmates at his site just to get their view on it because a lot of them race directly with this person and compete with this person for finishing places. And, you know, does it change your view? Um, so yeah, what I mean, what do you think, do banners? Do you suspect anyone? You... <laughs> Let's name and shame them in the BBR group. Do you suspect yeah. anyone? <laughs> yeah, tag them, tag them. <laughs> tag them. But it's it's there's there's there have been several people in ACR who people have suspected of doping. Some people who are former dopers. Um, oh, you and... talked about loads before we've even gone on the uh, on the podcast uh, sometimes. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. People who's, who've had massive jumps in performances or who are just delivering it to higher level, like especially OCR, where for some reason it became the culture. I don't know if this is true in the States where you'd race on a Saturday and you'd race on a Sunday every weekend. So they'd be racing on a Saturday hard and go out and run like crazy marathon time the next day. And you're like, this is very, very suspicious. There's a lot of people out yeah. there. I don't know if it's because I'm just because I know a lot of people, so therefore, inevitably, I'm gonna hear about, or just because I'm a massive gossip. So people are gonna tell. <laughs> I want to. I want to. What I'd love to hear about is someone that that is doping, like a massive doper, but is still dreadful, like or, you know, utterly dreadful, like you know. A, who literally comes last at stuff, but it's, it's doping and still persisting with doping. That's the kind of doping yeah. story I want to hear about. Uh, almost, almost the Icarus story, in fact. Yeah. <laughs> I, I took doping to show that it gave me advantage, and I got worse. Like, is there someone doping to win school sports day? Like, dad's race <laughs> at school sports day. We want to, we want to fight. Like, who are you, listener? Because we know, we know that the dopers are listening to this because they want a little few hints and tips. Like, <laughs> so, yeah. so that's what they're doing. That you want to stay ahead of the game. So, are you the world's worst doper? Yeah, are you the worst world's doper? Basically, if you are a doper and you're listening to this. We'll do it anonymously, and you don't even have to tell us your name. Just Facebook message me directly, set up a fake account from a fake email. We'll never have to know who you are, and we can do the voice thing. And we'd just love to know, yeah, justify yourself or explain yeah. yourself, because there there are good reasons for doping. It's just whether well, you we think want bad reasons for doping. That's what we want. Bad reasons. Yeah. <laughs> absolutely and yeah and and we we sit on the side of we're not dopers ourselves or are we, are we? wouldn't yeah. that be great if I just, 
just suddenly like there's an interview of one of us interviewing me as like asking ourselves questions. This is suspicious. I can't hear a change in voice. But um, <laughs> but if you if you feel you've got an interesting story or a compelling story, um, or if you if you've been caught doping and you'd like to come and give your side of the story and explain how it's just up your life, come and do that. We want to. We want to speak. These people do not get enough media attention. There's not enough talk about it. And I think <laughs> yeah, the cheaters and the dopers do not get enough attention. Do we? We want to tell your story. No, but I do. I really. I. I. I genuinely I feel. To hear your tale of shame. <laughs> but no, I. I do. There. I. I believe there are doping victims out there. And I think if you're a Russian athlete, you have no choice. You're a doper whatever happens and you know as rob said the, the photo of the the cross-country skier the 19 year old like no one no one grows up wanting to be a doper and if there's systematic doping around you how do you have a choice in that yeah exactly. and so we want to hear about it and we can do it anonymously we can we can do it however you want but get in touch with me spam me on facebook and uh, or email What's our email again? Bad, uh, letters, letters at badboyrunning.com. <laughs> letters at badboyrunning.com. Just send us an email. Uh, you know, and it's so easy to set up a, a, a Google account that's anonymous. Just send us an email and say, yeah, let's do it. Uh, and we're not going to try and uncover you, anything like that. We just want to understand and we want to basically help help with resolving the problem and i do feel <laughs> with resolving the problem <laughs> no, but i i do feel that we're too black and white on this issue and as rob said everyone in the system in russia is doping yeah. was doping and when that is the case there's no choice in doping and as soon as there's no choice in doping these people are victims as well these are people who probably wanted to be Olymp, who had the same dreams that clean athletes had, and they had no choice in it. And I'm trying to line something up with uh, an East African person at the moment to talk about this, but um, the connection's proving hard. And I, I do think we need to be more mature and adult about recognizing what the pressures are and understand. And until we talk about this openly, we don't understand how it all works. And until we understand how the organization of, of doping happens at uh, a national level and what the pressures are and at what point in the development system doping is introduced and the pressures on that, how can we resolve it? So you know, if you're listening to this, come on, you'll, you'll, be, you'll be really doing a good thing by doing that. So, um, ah, so there we go, JD. Yeah. Good episode. Doping all over. Doping, racism, everything. We've got, we got this it all. episode has covered everything. We got it all. The world's such a good place now because of us. Pat ourselves <laughs> We've on the back. We've resolved it. Pat ourselves on the back. <laughs> <laughs> but do better. You know, what do you think about um, where the discussion is on doping? Do you think, I mean, that, I mean, that still astounds me, what, 25%, 30%? And if 25%, 30% of people at the Olympics are doping or the world champs are doping, then that probably means the ones we think likely are which is now how does that make you feel how does that make you view the sport um and is it coming into ultra running are we naive to it does it exist let us uh, get in the group send us some messages let us at badboyrunning.com um whew, yeah 
any um any episodes you'd recommend for people who are first time listeners to this one? Uh, what in relation to doping? Um, just, just kind of discuss any of these issues or or any things that you think would be good as a follow up to. Oh, this is the trouble. If we now name if we name anyone, we're like, Ooh, <laughs> yeah. why are we naming that person? That's suspicious. Oh, yeah. That's oh, suspicious. Yeah, in relation to doping, let's just say Pete Reese, just because Pete Reese <laughs> wouldn't. He won't mind if we say he's a doper. He you know, he's, he's he's almost done a three fifty You think you think Danny Bent's on drugs? He's just very happy. It's only Danny Bent <laughs> yeah, episode. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, but if you're new to the podcast, which I suspect quite a few people will be for this one, I guess the best episodes to listen to, completely unrelated to doping, just because they're good episodes. I mean, Camille Heron ones are always good. That was what last week. Yeah. Um, which one? Ah, oh, some some really Rhonda Marie. Avery, incredible couple of episodes. She's got eight percent vision. She ran. She's done the Barkley marathons. Laz episode's good, but she's also run three hundred and fifty kilometers nonstop, unassisted, with eight percent vision. Insane, insane. She's incredible. Listen to that one. Any other favourites then, Jody, that you'd recommend? Uh, no, you mentioned some good ones there. I think yeah, things like um, uh, Dean Canaz's one is a great one. Um and oh, so many good ones. Actually, talking about doping, a good one to follow up is uh, Liz McColging. Her her daughter, she's she has been with denied gold medals by proven dopers. Her daughter is running against people heavily suspected of doping, and you know these are life changing decisions. That, that these dopers, that these these are changing their lives, and so she talks very candidly about um, her view of it in the sport and and what is being done and what isn't being being done. So that's a, that's a really good follow up to this. Um, yeah. Anything else you'd like to add, Jadester? No, no. Just uh, if you uh, if you enjoyed this episode, please go to uh, iTunes and uh, subscribe, rate, and review. Preferably uh, five stars. It makes a massive difference in helping David uh, stalk and get on guests. Yeah, and and if you know people out there that you think we should get on, I said get on guests. Don't mean get guests on. (laughs) Get on guests. (laughs) I'm uh, I am engaged, but you know, he hasn't tied me down yet. He'll do anything to get a great guest. Yeah, we gave that extra extra step. Um, yeah, anyone you'd recommend, or you know, do you know some former dopers who uh who would be good to talk candidly about it? I think we'll give it a bit of distance in episodes from this one, just so we we have a bit of variety. But it would be great to talk to them to really understand, um, you know, what they go through there and and what the fallout is truly on a on a personal level. Well, thanks for listening, guys. We'll see you next time. See you later. Bye 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 bye. Admit I was a clone to be messing around But that doesn't mean that you have to leave town Come back Yes, and give me one more try Cause a love like this should I never ever die Come back Fuck you, buddy